I've got to wear a lot of different hats in my life, fulfill a lot of different roles. But the dad hat is one of my favorites. And my son Topher, he's homesick today. He's seven years old. And one of the things that we absolutely love to do together, it's kind of one of our things that we do to connect, is we love to wrestle. We will clear out the living room, we'll, we'll set up couch cushions, and we'll put this little ring together, and from time to time he'll jump off the couches to the dismay of my wife, and we get in all kinds of trouble together, but we have wrestling matches. And so we will stand on opposite sides of the living room, and, and it, we'll talk a little smack back and forth, right? We'll do a little bantering. And so the other day I'm across the living room, and I'm standing there punching my fist, and I'm going, you want a piece of me? And he looks at me, and he goes, No. He goes, I want the whole thing. <laughs> so he's ready to go. We're ready to roll. We're ready to fight. We're ready to wrestle. We're having a good time. And one of the ways, if you know anything about wrestling, uh, whether it's athletic wrestling or MMA or wrestling in the living room, one of the ways that you can win is by getting your opponent to submit. There are different submission holds that you can do. If I get Topher in a bad spot or if by some miracle he gets me in a bad spot, one of us will tap. We'll tap out. And that's a sign of submission. And you don't want to submit. Submitting is for losers. It's a sign of weakness. It's a sign of failure. It's an admission of defeat. Submitting is for losers. Now, we might even apply that same perspective of submission in other areas of our life. I mean, think about what it means to submit as a citizen, an American citizen in our case. Think about what it means to submit within the church, to submit within a marriage, to submit within a family. Think about what it means to submit as an employee. Now listen, we start, we start talking about wrestling matches in the living room, it's one thing, but we throw around submission in those kind of settings, we can bristle a little bit. I mean, that can be a touchy subject. Well, today we're going to continue our study in the book of 1 Peter, and we're going to see what the Bible says about submission. And what we find might surprise us a little bit. What we're going to find is that as Christians, we really need to be living in the strength of submission. In God's economy, for God's people, in God's kingdom, submission is not a sign of weakness. It's not an admission of defeat. It's actually a sign of strength. And so as Christians, we need to live in the strength of submission. And today we're going to unpack that a little bit. We're going to talk about the different scenarios and settings and relationships that we need to apply the strength of submission what are those different scenarios? I mean, what's our motivation for submitting? What, what's the core of it? What's the essence of it? It's with those and other questions that we're going to humbly approach God's word together, and we're going to humbly pursue the answers. So I'd like to pray for us. Father, I'm very thankful today for the opportunity to be together as a church family to open your word. And I pray that as we do, you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us minds to learn and understand, and most importantly, that you would give us hearts to obey, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, let's get after it. Uh, grab your Bibles, open them up to the book of 1 Peter. That's the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible today, grab a pew Bible. They're in the pew racks right in front of you, and you can open to page 1015. 1 Peter chapter 2, page 1015. Uh, today we're going to look at verses 13 to 25. And uh, just a quick housekeeping note as you turn there. You might have picked up on the fact that we're uh, going past the first part of chapter 2 in 1 Peter. We're probably going to be going back to that, but uh, Pastor Al said in light of uh, lithotripsies and procedures, he's not touching a passage that's subtitled A Living Stone. <laughs> so I told him I was, was going to make a joke at his expense, so we're passing through the first part of uh, 1 Peter 2 
I'm sorry, that's going to be the last one. We're going right, we're going right to, uh, to verse 13. And the first thing that we're going to observe about what Peter says regarding the strength of submission is that that strength should be applied in the context of human authority. The strength of submission should be extended and applied to human institutions. Look at it with me. Read along as I read out loud. I'm going to start in verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Now, these are some huge statements from Peter, and we can really only appreciate the size and the weight of them as we think just for a second about the historical context in which he is writing to these Christians. You see, the emperor of Rome at the time that Peter was writing was a guy named Nero, and Nero led one of the most fierce persecutions against Christians in the history of the world. As a matter of fact, it was under Nero's administration that Peter, the same person that wrote this letter, was crucified. It was under Nero's administration that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was beheaded. And so you have to imagine that as, as Peter's audience read this, they're thinking, does he know who's in charge? I mean, how, how are we supposed to submit to, to that bum, Nero, really? I mean, why, why in the world would we submit to him? Well, we'll look at three reasons from the text. The first is that we ought to submit to human authority for the Lord's sake. Verse 13, submit, or as uh, the ESV says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. You see, this is the pillar of the entire argument. If we miss this, then we go from submission to subjugation, and they're very different. God is the pillar of the entire argument here for submitting to human authority, because submitting to human authority is really an illustration of our submission to God's authority. I mean, think about it. If If God is really sovereign, if he's really Lord of all, if he's really the king of kings, then he's ultimately the king behind the king, isn't he? He's the authority behind the authority. He's the constitution behind the constitution. As we submit to human authority, we're illustrating our submission to God. Paul tells us in Romans 13 that there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, Paul says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. So when we submit to human authority, we do it for the Lord's sake. The whole argument starts with God. Peter also shows us that we should submit to human authority as a good apologetic for the gospel. Submission puts in a good word for Christians. Look again down at verse 15. We see Peter saying that submission is a form of doing good that will silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, I don't need to tell you that some people are anxious and eager to bring reproach against Christianity. And the sad thing is that sometimes we give them the ammunition. I mean, every time a pastor or church leader cheats on his wife or embezzles money, it's on the front page of the newspaper. When a church in Florida carelessly announces an international burn a Quran day, 
It's on the news, right? They're all hypocrites. They're all just bigots. They're all just closed-minded. What Peter is saying here about submission to, a th- to human authority is that it actually has the opposite effect. It repels that kind of criticism, even authority that can be hostile to Christianity. The word silence that he uses here in the text means muzzle. So submitting to human authority for the Lord's sake is like putting a big piece of duct tape on the anxious critics of Christianity. The next thing that Peter says about applying submission to human authority is really helpful. It's just this great practical pastoral exhortation to not swing the pendulum too far to the other side of the thing. Because biblical submission is not the same thing as extreme pacifism. The application today is not to leave and become Amish. Okay, that's not the application for today's sermon. Biblical submission is not mindless subjugation. It's not living in bondage. You know, those MMA submission holds, you get some guy in a place where he can't move anymore. He's all bound up. Biblical submission is not like that. Peter says, on the contrary, we submit to human authority as an expression of freedom, an expression of freedom to serve God and to honor other people. Contrary to what our human nature might tell us, submission is not binding. Submission is really freeing. It's an act of freedom, and the purpose of that act of freedom is to serve God and to honor especially those that are in authority over us. Look at it again, verses 16 and 17. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Did you know the true freedom is not some unbridled license to do whatever you want, whenever you want, to whomever you want. That's not what true freedom is. I mean, that might be a postmodern understanding of, or a definition of, of freedom, but that's not what freedom is. Freedom is exercising right constraint. True freedom is not doing what you can do so much as it is doing what you should do. It's true in marriage, it's true in societies, and here it's, in, 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 it's true of human authority, submitting to human authority and honoring those in authority, exercising honor as an act of freedom. What's the first thing that you do when President Obama releases a statement that you don't agree with? Now we're going to get real here. Now everybody got quiet. Is it picking up the phone and calling your friends and talking about what a bummy is? Is it going on Facebook and slamming the administration? How about your boss? What's your response when your boss asks you to do something that you don't think is very reasonable? or unproductive, or outside the scope of your job description? Do you go to him and have an honoring, submissive conversation to him? Or do you grab the nearest coworker and run to the coffee pot for a sip and a slander? Now, listen, we may not agree with every decision and every policy of the presidential administration. Frankly, I'm not sure we should. We may not always agree with the leadership style of our bosses, but we cannot and should not blunt the edge of what Peter is telling us here. And he is calling Christians to submit and to rediscover the practice of showing honor. Can we behave certain ways? Absolutely. But should we? Or should we take our freedom and constrain it in such a way that serves God and that honors others? Now, have you picked up that this is a really light passage today? This is really, really easy stuff here. I mean, this is, this is hard. This was a hard passage to study and prepare for. It stings a little bit. But the other thing about this passage is that, remarkably, it's filled with grace. 
In fact, that's the next thing that Peter calls our attention to regarding the strength of submission. It is affirmed by the grace of unjust suffering. There is a grace, Peter says, that affirms us through times and circumstances when we experience unjust suffering because of our submission. Look at it. I want to read verse 18 again. He says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust or unreasonable or harsh, some of your Bibles might say. For this is a gracious thing. There's our word, grace. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now, we don't really have time uh, for a full historical study of servants and masters in the first century. It's a really great study. Check it out. But basically, we can liken that relationship as closely as possible today as we can the relationship between employees and employers. You know, the relationship of bosses and boards and governing institutions. We might also think about it in terms of those serving in the military, uh, paid interns, or even medical residents would be another good contemporary comparison. And so many of these servants were, uh, or household managers, as some of the translations say, were well-trained, they were educated, doctors, nurses, musicians, they were paid for their work. However, with that said, as it is with us, there would have been plenty of stress and strain surrounding their work and their working relationship. In fact, Peter's instruction here is to submit with respect not only to good masters, but also, what does he say, to those that are unjust or unreasonable. Anybody ever have an unreasonable boss? Anybody ever have a hard day at work? I mean, this is what Peter is speaking to here. And what's interesting is, is, is that Peter doesn't call for these Christians to just up and leave these, these situations. He doesn't say, pound your fist on the boss's desk and demand your rights. He doesn't say, quit that crummy job and go leave and live your best life now. He doesn't say any of those things. He calls for submission and respect. Did you notice also the word gracious that's repeated twice in this set of verses? This is just remarkable. I mean, our first inclination is to get out of a bad situation. And when we touch a hot stove, we pull our hand away. But Peter says that submission is actually an experience with grace. And he, and he gives a couple of clauses there. How is that possible? We see it first in, in the experience of grace through unjust suffering when we are mindful of God in active consciousness of God. His plan, his presence, his purpose connects us to the grace when we experience unjust suffering. Verse 19, look at it again. This is a gracious thing. There's our word. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. You see, we're not to just suffer for suffering's sake. We're not just to pursue suffering because we like pain. We're not supposed to just put our head down and get our hands on the plow and grind through it. Peter is saying that unjust suffering is an experience of grace when we experience it mindful of God. And the word that he uses for sorrow here describes a mental and emotional sorrow. It's like an internal strife. Have you ever felt insecurity at work? Have you ever felt bitter or unappreciated? These, these internal feelings and struggles, this is what he's talking about. And so Peter's call to be mindful or conscious of God then makes sense, doesn't it? Because the key to dealing with inward strife is not outward strength, it's inward trust. It's inward reflection on the character of God, 
reflection on the sovereignty of God, the care of God, his unchanging love and attentiveness to us. This is the gracious way to deal with even the crummiest day at work. And the second thing that he says, and this one just blew me away. He says that the experience of grace and unjust suffering happens when we endure for doing good. That's one of the reasons that we can call unjust suffering unjust. I mean, sometimes doing the right thing will put us in a position of unjust suffering. And this, Peter says, is a gracious thing. Look at verse 20. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? So if you do something stupid at work and you get in trouble for it, there's no grace there. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. It's an act, an experience of grace in the sight of God. And this is really hard to swallow. I mean, think about it. We tell our kids, I tell my kids, listen, do good, make good choices, and good things will come your way. Well, not always. Sometimes life is remarkably unjust. Sometimes you will do the right thing and get no recognition for it. Sometimes you'll be unappreciated, underappreciated, unrecognized at work. Sometimes you're not going to get a gold star. In fact, sometimes doing what is right will cause you to not be recognized. And so this is a breakthrough if we can catch it because submission is not just an obligation, a duty that's passive. It's also active in this sense. It's experiencing grace and showing grace as we suffer actively for doing what is right. So submission doesn't mean that we just roll over and stop doing good. Biblical submission means that we do good knowing that it will sometimes result in suffering, and we do it anyway. Howard Hendricks uh, was a longtime professor at Dallas Seminary, and Hendricks recalls a story of when he was flying somewhere. Uh, all the passengers boarded the plane, and suddenly they began to experience difficulties uh, getting the plane ready to go. So all the passengers were stuffed inside this plane. Now, I don't know if you've ever been stuck inside of a plane, but it is like a cesspool for angry people. I mean, so... 15 minutes goes by, 30 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half, and these people are getting cranky. And Hendrick said it was remarkable that he noticed that the airline attendant was demonstrating a remarkable submission to criticism that w was not merited. She was taking complaints that really she had no way to fix the issue, but she was being so gracious and so patient. And finally, the plane took off, it got in the air, and as she came by delivering peanuts or something, he made a point of saying, you know what, I just have to commend you for the grace that you extended in that situation. I mean, you were submitting to a lot of criticism, to a lot of complaints that really weren't your fault, but you handled it so graciously and patiently. Well, she looked at him and she said, I, I really appreciate that, but you know, the truth is, is I don't just work for this airline company. I work for the Lord. I'm a Christian. In fact, my, my husband and I were praying this morning that as I went to work, I would be a good representation of who Jesus is, even if it was a really bad day. Now, what is your natural response when you're wronged at work? What is your natural response when, as a student, you do everything you're supposed to do and you still don't get the grade that you think you deserve? Is it resentment? Bitterness? Self-pity? I'm a big self-pity guy. Have you ever done something at work, something that was good, like mind-blowing, like going to change the trajectory of the company, and somebody else gets credit for it? Or you get no recognition, not even a thank you? 
Guys, this is the answer, and it's so liberating to the frustrating and the hurt, being mindful of God. He is overseeing your work. He sees your commitment to honoring your boss, to honoring your customers that abuse you, to honoring teachers that maybe aren't fair to you, even and especially when they don't deserve it. We often define grace, don't we, as receiving something that we don't deserve. This is so freeing. In patiently enduring and bearing up under those trials and submitting to them, what Peter is saying is that you're able to demonstrate grace to people when they hurt you. And that is favorable in God's eyes. It's gracious. He smiles on that situation. And so the strength of submission is affirmed by the grace of unjust suffering. So we've seen that, that strength of submission in a couple of different ways, applied a couple of different ways. The first was to human authority, and second was in this grace of unjust suffering. And Peter leaves us here with a final but invaluable component and motivator, really, the core of living in the strength of submission. And that's the core rooted in the perfect submission of Jesus. In Jesus, we have the source of how we can live in the strength of submission. The source is his perfect submission. Check it out uh, in verses 21 to 25. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." Guys, this is the climax of the whole thesis to submission actually being a secret strength and living for God and being effective for God. It's the perfect submission of Jesus. And we see his perfect submission providing or supplying two critically important things for us. The first is an example to follow. Jesus' perfect submission provides our example. Verse 21, to this you have been called. Notice that submission and suffering are not a suggestion. It is actually part of our vocation as Christian disciples. That will blow up the prosperity gospel. Our calling is to suffer and to follow in Christ's steps. So to this we've been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, the text says, so that you might follow in his steps. So every time you submit to human authority for the Lord's sake, you're walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Every time you experience unjust suffering for doing good, you are walking in the footsteps of Jesus. You are following his example. You want to know how to submit to human authority? How about Pilate and Herod and soldiers that beat him and crowds that mocked him? Like a lamb led to the slaughter. You want to know how to do that? Look to Jesus. He provides a perfect submission. Do you want to know how to bear up under the weight of unjust suffering? and to be able to experience and extend grace when you go through those times? How about, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing? You want to know how to continually be mindful of God when you're going through times of unjust suffering? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. All we need to do is look at Jesus' perfect submission of the cross and then follow his example. I mean, the word that Peter uses here, for example, literally means 
to write under or to trace letters. I promised Emma because I was going to talk about Topher at the beginning of this sermon. I'd talk about her at the end. And so she's a really, really good artist. And one of the ways that she learned to draw is she would get those little books where you have two pieces of paper. You know, one gives you the outline of the drawing and the other one is like a thin piece of paper on top. And she would do these things for hours. She would just trace carefully. She would follow the example of the template set before her. That is the kind of detail and precision that we are to exercise in following Jesus in the strength of submission. Now, before we wrap this thing up, uh, we need to, to be very, very clear about something. Jesus' perfect submission does indeed provide us an example. The text is very, very clear about that. We ought to walk in his steps. But his submission also provides something much bigger, something absolutely necessary. I mean, if we were to finish the sermon here, the temptation might be to walk out of here going, what a nice sermon that was. I mean, Jesus, you know, he was such a good guy. I mean, people were mean to him, and he was nice to them back. And so when people are mean to us, we ought to be nice to them back. Isn't that a lovely sermon? That, that might be the temptation, but we can't stop here because Jesus' perfect submission provides something else for us. Take your eyes back to verse 21 in this passage. I really want you to see it. For to this you've been called because Christ also suffered two big words here for you. Jesus' suffering did something for us. And his, his perfect submission provides not only our example, but also our salvation. Jesus submitted to torture and to ridicule and suffering to accomplish something, not just to leave us a good example, but to accomplish something. Verse 24 says, he bore our sins in his body on the tree. That, another big word in verse 24, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, the application when you live here is not just submit better. Because if you do, you'll be prideful, and if you don't, you'll be guilty. The way to live in the strength of submission is to build that on the platform of Jesus' perfect submission, his better submission. And I love the way that verse 23 describes he continually entrusted himself to him who judges justly. For those of you that maybe have not experienced or received the salvation that Jesus' perfect submission provides, I want to encourage you to receive it today. I mean, think about that word just for a minute. God is a, a just judge, a just judge that Jesus continually entrusted all of himself to. God will, as a just and perfect being, eliminate all evil and sin and wickedness in the world. That sounds really great. The problem is that that sin and wickedness extends to us. We are sinners by nature and by choice. And so what are we going to do? We need an advocate. We need a substitute. We need a representative. And in Jesus' perfect submission, we have all of those things. Have we received and accepted the fact that his submission and his sacrifice is totally perfect in satisfying the justice of God? In entrusting himself to the one who judges justly, he provided a means that we could be justified. And the way that we do that is by faith, by believing and by trusting that it's the merits of Jesus that's his perfect submission that can ultimately square us with God by turning away from an old life in bondage to sin and living to righteousness on the platform of righteousness that he provides for us by his grace. Now, maybe you're here this morning 
and you're a Christian, you've got about a hundred different applications of this passage. I mean, some of you, truth be told, need to go into your boss's office on Monday and say, I need to apologize to you because I have been a crummy employee. I've talked about you behind your back. I've not honored you. I've not respected you. Some of you need to do this. You say, we talked about this at church, and this is really hard and uncomfortable, but you need to know that I want to do everything I can to honor you and to respect you. And so you need to know, as a Christian, I apologize, and you have my commitment. Some of you need to write an apology letter to the president. I'm not kidding. I mean, he's not going to read it. He may not receive it. But there needs to be a sense of being able to respectfully disagree with certain opinions while still showing and maintaining honor. Why? Because we submit to human authority not because we're being subjugated, but because we're freely constraining our freedoms for the Lord's sake. We need to take encouragement by the fact that as we submit to unreasonable bosses, we're really submitting to the Lord. He sees our work. We need to take comfort and be totally liberated by the fact today that when we do good and suffer for it, when we do good and go unnoticed, there is one set of eyes that still sees us. And you can be encouraged and affirmed to continue bearing up under unjust suffering because it's a gracious thing. You need to extend and show grace to those who've hurt you. It's a gracious thing in the sight of God. And most importantly, we cannot forget that the whole root of this thing is rooted in the perfect submission of Jesus. And in him we have a perfect example to follow. In him we have a better submission that not only provides an example to us, but provides us a salvation, a total transformation. Dying to sin, living to righteousness. He accomplished that for us. We just have to trust that it was sufficient. We have to believe it by faith, and in believing by faith, our lives are totally transformed, not only in the area of submission, but in every other area. So I, my prayer for us, friends, today is that we would go today embracing and practicing the strength of submission. I want to pray for you. Father, thank you for the opportunity today to have our hearts and minds wrecked a bit. Uh, Father, I thank you for the conviction that comes from your Holy Spirit a conviction that does not leave us hopeless, but that leads us into hope, knowing that as we screw up this whole idea of submission, that there is one who has provided us a perfect submission, and so it's upon his active righteousness as Christians that we can stand before you. And that's our motivation today. How incredibly motivating that all that we need to have had accomplished in this life has already been accomplished by Jesus, so we can go free, free from being bound up in self-pity, we can be free from anger and resentment. We can trust and know that the one who judges justly sees us as righteous as we receive the merits of Jesus by faith. What a great blessing. And Father, I pray today we would rejoice even through times of sorrow, even through when, when trials come, when sorrows like sea billows roll, as we will sing in just a moment knowing that we can rejoice and that our souls are made well because of the one who went to the cross. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.